Good evening. Welcome to the Cato Institute celebration of the 81st anniversary of Repeal Day. I'm Kat Murthy, Cato's Digital Marketing Manager, and you are at Cato Digital, a regular event series on the intersection of tech, social media, and liberty. Our panel of experts today will be discussing prohibitionism 81 years after the repeal of the 18th Amendment, which supposedly ended this country's failed experiment with prohibition, but as our panel will let you know today, that might be in some question. Uh, the hashtag for this evening is Cato Digital. Please feel free to join the conversation on Twitter or Instagram. And for those of you watching from the live stream, we will be taking questions from uh, Twitter at the end of the evening. Just hashtag it Cato Digital. Our first panelist here to my right is Walter Olson. Walter is a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. He's also the founder and editor of Overlawyer.com, widely cited as the world's oldest uh, internet law blog and one of the most popular. You can find him on Twitter at Walter Olson. Thank you. Thank you, Kat. Can you all hear me? Am I loud enough? Okay. Um, well, I brought my substance abuse paraphernalia with me uh, this <laughs> evening. Uh, for younger members of the audience, or perhaps not uh, for them, um, uh, let me explain. This is a cocktail shaker. The illustration is Sweet Adeline, a couple of men in top hats, uh, Sweet Adeline is the kind of barbershop quartet that uh, <coughs> old sots enjoy singing in four-part harmony. And I did not realize until a day or two ago that this would have counted as substance abuse paraphernalia, but indeed the state of Indiana passed a law not banning cocktail shakers and flasks, but saying that no store could lawfully display in their front window things as jolly as cocktail shakers or flasks because it would give people the wrong idea about how to entertain themselves. I learned that from Daniel Okrent's wonderful book, Last Call, which you'll be hearing about more. Uh, Michelle has a copy. And <clears throat> which I finally got around to reading over the last couple of days and recommend. It is full of things that made me forget that I was reading about the distant past, about uh, police encounters, for example, like that in which the secretary of the Elks Lodge in Niagara Falls, New York, was shot dead by police. Uh, as Oakland mentions, he had no liquor in his possession and no previous record. So there was a bit of a stirring of public controversy as to whether the police should have shot him. But of course, the majority seem to believe that the police are there to enforce the law. Um, Stephen Carter, the uh, the professor at Yale Law School has a Bloomberg column out that I recommend uh, about <clears throat> um, in which he, he begins, on the opening day of law school, I always counsel my first year students never to support a law they are not willing to kill to enforce. And he says that his first year law students are often kind of puzzled and skeptical. Wait, why are you talking about killing? We're just talking about enacting you know, regular, regulatory quality of life type laws. And he says that eventually, certainly after a year of criminal law, uh, they begin to realize what he's talking about. I think the whole, whole nation is realizing a bit more what he's talking about these days. Well, Oakland's book confirmed much of what I had suspected and much of what I think we already know through conventional wisdom. Oakland is not a libertarian, so far as I know, which makes it all the more plausible. Uh, but uh, it, yes, it stirred organized crime uh, to, to new heights. Yes, it corrupted much of our government. Yes, tens of thousands of people died or were paralyzed through poisoning uh, from having consumed things that were impure that would have been pure had they been able to buy them legally. But where things get fascinating is on the nature of the prohibition movement. 
I had not realized the extent to which it drew on both moralists and social engineers, uh, both the right, quote unquote, and the left, but like other more modern issues, in fact, it cut right across those. And the support of the social engineers, specifically the progressive movement, was tremendously important. Uh, Oakland illustrates beautifully how it tied in with the other progressive causes of the time, whether it be fighting World War I, excluding immigrants, imposing an income tax. I, you wouldn't think there's a connection, but there is, uh, having to do with the loss of revenue from banning uh, liquor. And, uh, and in general, the enormous expansion of the federal government was all around the same time. Prohibition was very much a symbol of what progressivism could accomplish. Now, my field is law. That's what I write about at Cato. And so I was particularly interested in <coughs> the legal consequences of prohibition. Gifford Pinchot, one of the leading progressives, uh, when elected governor of Pennsylvania, quote, turned the state police into a commando army. If you worry about militarization of the police, it isn't that recent. Uh, the Supreme Court heard 20 cases over the course of prohibition on search and seizure on the Fourth Amendment. Never had it heard so much jurisprudence. And the Fourth Amendment was left, unfortunately, kind of shredded. It has never recovered to this day. But when you have a law banning contraband, you predictably generate thousands and tens of thousands of interactions between authorities and the populace about whether they can search things or not. Um, it was a landmark in prosecution for profit. Uh, Indiana prosecutors got a bounty, an extra large bounty for every conviction they managed to achieve. If the person got off, they wouldn't get paid that bounty. Um, Ohio paid more than half of its proceeds to presiding officials and towns. So, you know, we have done them one better. We have forfeiture now. We have asset forfeiture, which uh, enables the sheriff's departments of so many of these counties to uh, afford their sports cars. But but they were pioneering it, believe me, back then, too. Um, <clears throat> what I did not realize nearly as much, I knew the legal history in, in broad outlines, but I didn't realize how extraordinarily successful the prohibition movement was in some non-legal ways. In 1879, that's more than 40 years before uh, the prohibition amendment passed uh, and was sent to the states, they had announced that they wanted school curriculum to be theirs. And between 1882 and 1901, every state, even the very wet ones, like New York and Maryland, every state enacted drinking education, if this sounds familiar. Um, they, <clears throat> more than half the states were estimated to be using textbooks that had been specifically approved by a prohibition committee, whose messages on uh, drinking included things like, to quote, the majority of beer drinkers die of dropsy, <laughs> if, if, if we even remember what dropsy is, um, with other equally colorful uh, bits of science. This was taught in the public schools, and it was well recognized by prohibition activists that, um, you know, public schools, they train in citizenship. I mean, that's what's so idealistic about it. They realized they were building up the public opinion that a generation later would be willing to uh, uh, adopt their proposals. Even more interesting to me was how the period pioneered a kind of um, interweaving of nonprofits and foundations and philanthropy with government on this issue. Um, it would turn up, for example, that someone uh, uh, working for the government of Pennsylvania was having their salary paid by the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Or alternatively, money that you thought was going through government coffers would turn up in the hands of private prohibition groups. Uh, it was quite extraordinary how they managed to get government money to be used to lobby for their own cause on the one side, and on the other side, uh, managed to be 
controlling things going on within the government, even though no one had elected them. They were one of the, the pressure groups. And that jolted me forward to the present moment, because if there is anything that strings together the various controversies, usually local controversies, about, you know, shall we ban vaping or treat it in as hostile a way as we do cigarette smoking, even though it doesn't have the secondhand effects, even though it doesn't have uh, nearly as much damage even to the, uh, the, the, the smoker, even though it is a, a way for people to get off the smoking habit. Um, should we do that? Should we ban fast food restaurants around schools? Uh, should we, as the town of Westminster, Massachusetts considered doing a few weeks ago, should we ban tobacco sales entirely? Um, now, again and again, if you look at these local controversies, you find that uh, <clears throat> there are scuttering around uh, these people with foundations, these people, you know, with foundations in New York City are scuttering around uh, these small towns. Uh, and where there are government people, for example, the town of Westminster, which has fewer than 10,000 people, has its own tobacco control officer. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I thought, when did the townspeople of Westminster, with their relatively few and local priorities, when did they decide to appoint a tobacco control officer? And then I found the article that explained it, which is that there is a grant program uh, through which some of the money sluices, hundreds of millions of dollars, some of it from Obamacare, some of it from the tobacco settlement with states, but hundreds of millions of dollars is sluicing through do, uh, doing things like creating grant programs, and as they were innocently quoted saying, well, of course, every local town wants grants. After you apply for the grant and get it, you find out what it is they expect you to do for the grant. And in the case of these little Massachusetts towns, what they're expected to do for their grant, which is funneled through the state from other places, is to lobby for local ordinances on public health topics. And the list of what those topics are will be sent to them from outside Westminster. Well. This, as I say, seemed awfully familiar because it is how the new prohibitionism works today. And don't underestimate how far it has gone. We've all been paying more attention to New York cigarette law in the last few days. Uh, last year, according to Cato's website, um, it had already been estimated that New York, because of its unusually high tax, uh, much higher than other states, uh, also managed to be the only state in the country where more than half of all cigarette sales are now done on the black market, 60% estimated as of last year. New York, I would say, is more than halfway toward tobacco prohibition mm -hmm. if 60% of the cigarettes, whether Lucy's or uh, in packs, are in fact being supplied by the black market. So, Kat asked me what we can do about it through social media. This jolted me back. I do what I can uh, through Overlord, which I recommend to all of you as kind of an archive of craziness and audacity, <laughs> uh, but by the uh, what I consider to be the bad guys on this. And yet, uh, simply blocking and hoping that someone reads it a couple of years later is only one strategy and not one with a lot of immediate payoff. Uh, I think of Twitter hashtags. and. You may have seen a couple of weeks ago that it spontaneously trended. Uh, Thanks, Michelle Obama was being tweeted by high schoolers around the country uh, with pictures of their extraordinarily unappetizing school lunches, um, which even if you managed to choke it down, obviously were not going to satisfy your appetite. Um, and uh, you know, this was considered outrageous. How dare you attack the, the first family and so forth and so on. Um, but it was spontaneous. And spontaneous also was my real favorite in the Twitter hashtag wars on the nanny state, which is uh, Bloomberg movie titles. Now, I'll only list a few of my favorites. Bloomberg movie titles include The Appropriately Sized Lebowski. Um, <laughs> I, I Know What You Ate Last Summer. <laughs> Uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Flan, and of course, 16 Carats. Well, one of the points that 
comes across in, in, when Oprah turns to the happier last part of the story about how the prohibitionists began losing ground is that people began feeling that it was okay to make fun of them. And that's where social media really is at its best, don't you think, is in making fun of them. Because uh, for a while it was only H.L. Mencken, uh, after whom we have, I believe, named one of our Cato fellowships. Uh, but eventually, by the late 20s, uh, almost anyone felt uh, that they could join in and, and make fun of them. Uh, let's all do that, too. Um, if there's time, uh, visit the Cato website, look up Christopher Hitchens and tobacco, and you will see that almost exactly 10 years ago tonight, um, December 10th, 2004, um, Hitchens gave a speech to Cato about all of these issues. It's, it's too wonderful and, uh, for me to summarize it all. Um, I will mention only um, uh, one or two of the points he makes. He, <clears throat> this is also contraband. Uh, it is an ashtray. Um, and he mentions that in his life in, in the New York Magazine world, one of his editors had been busted for smoking, while not even in his office. And the reason is that Bloomberg sent around inspectors to look for ashtrays. And they would write you tickets even if you were on vacation, because an ashtray meant that you at least had been thinking about violating the law. And Hitchens said, it's so disappointing to find that when the opposition to the Bloomberg proposals got into the papers at all, it was on things like it's going to harm the business of uh, bars and restaurants, and, and you don't want to harm the New York economy, do you? Said, of course we don't want to harm the New York economy, and yet that can't be the most important, or even the second or third most important uh, issue at stake here. There is human liberty. There is our relationship to the state. And there is, finally, let me close on this, the kind of work that this does to the souls of those of us who are not even drinking or not even using the banned things uh, through being responsible for enforcement. We are all turned into snitches. We are all turned into arms of the government. Everyone winds up with complicity in the outrages of enforcement. So don't do it to save the poor addicts and drunkards. Do it to save our souls. Repeal. Thank you, Walter. Up next, we have uh, Stacia Kosner. Stacia is the Deputy Director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Uh, she got involved in drug policy when she joined the UMD chapter of, US, of SSDP in 2005. Under her leadership, that chapter won the Most Outstanding Chapter Award in 2006. Uh, she received SSDP's Rising Star Award in 2006 as well, and in 2007 uh, received the Outstanding Student Activist Award from SSDP and was named Freedom Fighter of the Month by High Times Magazine. You can follow her on Twitter at, at @thestacia. Thanks, Kat, and thank you so much for uh, having me here today. I'm Stacia Kosner, Deputy Director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and I'm honored and excited to uh, celebrate um, Happy Repeal Day with you guys. Um, let me make sure this is working, all right. <laughs> I'm sure many of you have seen this iconic uh, newspaper headline from December 6, 1933. We have this uh, hanging in the SSDP office to remind us that this country ended prohibition once, and we can do it again. The parallels between alcohol prohibition and today's war on drugs are difficult to ignore. Both began as well-intentioned, if not disastrously misguided, attempts by the federal government to legislate morality by telling us what we can and can't put in our own bodies. Let me start by playing devil's advocate for a moment. Depending on your definition of the word worked, it could be argued that alcohol prohibition did, at least at first. While it's difficult to know exactly, data suggests that after an initial drop, alcohol consumption rose back to pre-prohibition levels before the law was repealed. 
Let's say for argument's sake that it did indeed make a dent in alcohol consumption. Now let's take a look at data on people who said they'd used drugs in the past month from the 1970s until today. It's clear that there was a bit of a decline in the late 80s, but since then things seem to have leveled off. Again, let's say for argument's sake that the drug war policies did indeed contribute to this decline. This, for the record, will be the only time you'll ever hear me suggest the prohibition work. Bear with me here. <laughs> <laughs> My question is then, was it worth it? When you start to think of the price we paid in exchange for these prohibitions, one quickly realizes that these modest declines in use came at enormous cost, both financial and otherwise. Let us count the ways. <laughs> these policy approaches made crimes out of victimless acts. Who's being harmed by this behavior other than arguably the person themselves? They're expensive and difficult to enforce, spending billions on enforcement and missing out on billions of potential tax, uh, tax revenue, all while, having a, all while not even having a significant impact on availability. These unequal levels of enforcement create a disrespect for, disrespect for the rule of law. They create and bolster the black market, pushing these transactions underground, which puts profits in the hands of criminals, bootleggers, and drug cartels. They foster gang violence, since these uh, underground businesses have no court of law in which to resolve their grievances, so they're forced to take matters into their own hands. They fail to provide regulations that the market depends on, making it easier for young people to obtain alcohol or drugs. They allow for dangerous, impure, and unregulated products to reach consumers. Think of the tainted MDMA today as just like the moonshine of the 1920s. And by pushing alcohol and drug use underground, it leads to dangerous outcomes, like binge drinking and overdose. They treat public health problems with criminal justice solutions. Suffering from an addiction, maybe some time in jail will help. They invade our privacy. They provide an excuse for the police to initiate searches of people, their homes, and their vehicles. And they allow the government to seize property, property and assets from drug crime suspects. I could go on, but I won't. <laughs> if this is the price for reduced consumption of alcohol and other drugs, even if it worked well, which I think we can all agree that it didn't, was it or would it be worth it? I believe the obvious answer is no. There has to be a better way. Illicit dealers don't check ID and aren't bound by rules governing health, safety, or the types of products they can carry. But there's no question that a business whose license depends on strict adherence to the law is going to protect that investment by restricting sales to adults. Evidence that regulating marijuana helps decrease teen marijuana use continues to grow. Since Colorado established a tightly regulated legal medical marijuana market in 2009, rates of past month marijuana use among youth in that state have been declining year after year, from 25% in 2009 to 20% in 2013, and have dropped below the national average of 23%. It's exciting to see these numbers and other data that support that regulation is a better approach to these problems associated with drug and alcohol use than ones that prohibit it outright. Another parallel between alcohol prohibition and the war on drugs is exceptions for medical use. The National Prohibition Act of 1919 stipulated that permit-holding physicians could write prescriptions for medicinal alcohol. As part of its statement in 1922, the American Medical Association identified 27, 27, 27 different conditions that could be remedied by alcohol, anything from asthma, diabetes and cancer, to things like lactation issues, snake bites, and old age. <laughs> 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 According to Daniel Ockren's book, Last Call, there was an effort to block this doctor's privilege in 1922 in response to uh, the perception that it was being abused. But the AMA prevented that change 
uh, asserting that anything that would limit the doctor's ability to prescribe liquor would, quote, be a serious interference with the practice of medicine. This is something we hear often in the medical marijuana debate today. It's striking more and more people as odd that the government wants to step in uh, to make decisions that ought to be left up to patients and their doctors. While the majority of today's policymakers don't seem to be drawing the same conclusions that led to the ratification of the 21st Amendment, the public is. As many of you are aware, this year's midterm election provided the drug policy reform movement with a few important victories. Voters in Alaska, Oregon, and Washington, D.C. voted to legalize marijuana for adults. Unfortunately, an initiative to make medical marijuana legal in Florida failed with 58% of the vote. That's a topic for another day. <laughs> and as you can see from this map created by our friends at the Marijuana Policy Project, states will soon be in the minority if they don't allow for citizens to use and obtain medical marijuana. And with the recent midterm victories, this brings us to four states in the District of Columbia where marijuana prohibition for people over the age of 21 is a thing of the past. SSDP was involved in all four of this year's marijuana policy campaigns, uh, but we had a particular focus on Florida and Washington, D.C. We piloted our, our campus, new campus campaign, experimenting with strategies that we'll, that we'll employ in 2016. This slide shows a few of our activity and engagement metrics. We went from one struggling chapter in D.C. to, to six and made about 12% of the overall voter contacts for the Yes on 71 campaign. In Florida, we went from communicating with about 150 students to more than 3,200. All told, our national network of students and alumni interacted with more than 41,000 voters in these states. Our online phone bank has been a big part of our work in this area. It's proven to be an effective tool for reaching voters and engaging our supporters this year as well as in 2012 when we made history by legalizing marijuana for the first time in Colorado and Washington. The way it works is students and supporters would log in through the phone bank on our website and then they're pre presented with a voter's name, a phone number, and a call script to use. This midterm election, our network placed, placed 15,178 calls to voters in these states. Our chapters and, and supporters competed with each other to win prizes, and we kept a leaderboard updated with the top individual and group call totals. Something that, about this that really appealed to our network was that you didn't have to be in a campaign state to get involved. All you needed was a computer. And as technology continues to evolve, I'm sure that these types of systems will only become more sophisticated and easy to use, allowing groups like SSDP to become more effective in our advocacy. To sum things up, the facts are that under modern prohibition, drugs are both frequently used by adults and readily available to both adults and young people. It would be wonderful if we lived in a world where young people didn't use substances like drugs and alcohol, but a, a century of prohibition and four decades of a devastating drug war have failed to create that utopia. Thankfully, things seem to be moving in the right direction as more and more people start to realize that drug, drug prohibition is not only not working, it's failing miserably while creating a laundry list of new problems. But just because the momentum is in our favor does not mean our work is over. Mar the end of marijuana prohibition is within sight, but nothing is inevitable. So if we keep our eye on the prize and continue to push for a more sensible approach to drug policy, here's to hoping that we'll have another prohibition repeal day to celebrate in our lifetime. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to take a minute to uh, let our online viewers know, in case you missed the introduction, that you can tweet in questions using Cato Digital, and we will uh, answer them at the end of the panel. And with that, I would like to introduce our final speaker for the evening, Michelle Minton. Michelle is the Competitive Enterprise Institute's fellow specializing in consumer policy, FDA regulation of non-pharmaceuticals, 
alcohol regulation, food and beverage regulation, and internet gambling. She's co-authored several studies, including topics including on topics like syntaxes and alcoholic beverage regulation. And in her free time, she studies the art and history of making beer. You can find her on Twitter at Michelle Minton. Thanks, Kat. Uh, hello, everybody. Happy Repeal Day. Uh, it's definitely something that's worth celebrating. Uh, oh, oh, right there. I guess, but I'm sort of here to be the Debbie Downer and talk about how far we haven't come since Prohibition, how much of the Prohibition era regulations are still hanging around. And as you can tell by the title here, I'm going to focus on beer, not just because it's my favorite food group, but because <laughs> it's, it was really essential to the lead up and the aftermath of prohibition. And it, it really plays into the laws that we have now on all alcohol, not just beer. So right now, if you're, if you're a beer drinker, if you've been a beer drinker for the last couple of years, you know that we are in the golden age of beer. Uh, America produces more beer now than we ever have in, in our history, and now we have almost as many breweries as we had in the 1870s. We're still working our way up. We've got about 3,000 with another 2,000 set to come online in the next couple of years. That's pretty exciting. Uh, I'm sure most of you are from states outside of DC, so you're familiar with a lot of the craft brewers that have been popping up in the last couple of years. Instead of just the Bud and Bud Light option, we now have Pilsners, IPAs, uh, Imperial Stouts, and Lambics, all kinds of different beers. But you might have noticed that when you travel state from state, and sometimes even county to county, you can't always get the beer you want to get. And sometimes it's a little weird about when you can buy beer, where you can buy beer, or other alcohols. And that is largely due to the layover from prohibition. So despite the fact that we're in the golden age of beer, this map represents the most popular beers by sale. So the country's sales are still mostly dominated by two breweries. And those two breweries have been around since before prohibition. Just to note on this map that Blue Moon is actually owned by Anheuser-Busch, and Corona is also, I'm sorry, Blue Moon is owned by Miller Coors, and Anheuser-Busch owns Corona now. So you can notice most of the states, except for a few that favor Sam Adams and a few that favor Yingling, go Pennsylvania, uh, it's Miller and Anheuser-Busch that pretty much dominate the market. Craft beer makes up about 8% of sales, 7 to 8%, depending on who you ask. So, you know, if you're an economist looking at this market, knowing how many bars are now featuring craft beer, how, how big of a demand there is for craft beer, it might be weird that we still have a market dominated by just two large breweries. And I'll get into uh, why that is later. So uh, one of the things that I'm going to focus on uh, is talking about the crazy alcohol laws that have just stuck around since Prohibition. I can't talk about all of them because we'll be here all week, really, even if I just focused <laughs> on beer. I'm sure many of you probably have your own stories from your home states. But this here is a map of Arkansas. And the, uh, the, yellow, the yellow counties represent the ones that are wet, meaning that they can sell alcohol. The ones that are pink are mostly dry with areas where you can get alcohol, like a restaurant, for example. The vast majority of counties are still dry. And this past November, there was, an election, there was a ballot initiative to try and make the state wet, to make all counties in the state wet. That failed pretty miserably. Uh, and the reason it failed is something that, as Walter was talking about, the same tactics that were used to pass prohibition were used in Arkansas. The churches got together with the liquor stores to defeat it. And, and you can probably guess why the liquor stores were so interested in keeping most of the counties dry, because they were worried if other counties went wet, there would be competing liquor stores, and they didn't want to lose their competitive edge. Right, so uh, even with the repeal of prohibition, that didn't necessarily mean that all alcohol was legal. For example, it wasn't until 1979 that the federal prohibition on home brewing was lifted. That's one of the big things that led to that huge uptick after the 80s that we saw in the number of breweries. Uh, 
for some states, they didn't even legalize home brewing until last year. One of those states was Alabama, also Mississippi. So this is a story about a man who owned a, a beer store, beer and wine store, who was raided, and the Liquor Control Board seized a bunch of his equipment because they said it could be used for the production of beer at the home. Mm -hmm. uh, distilling, if you're not aware of this, is still a federal crime. Yeah, this guy. I'm sure he has a lot of customers um, in jail. Uh, home distilling is still a federal crime. You cannot distill in your home at all. You can distill on your property in a separate, uh, in a separate housing unit if you get a permit from the federal government and if you pay taxes. So that's definitely a remnant from prohibition. Uh, most, most states allow for what we call growlers, which is you can take a growler jug and you can take it to the brewery and get it filled for home consumption. Florida allows growlers as well, and the standard size for a growler is 64 ounces. Uh, but Florida doesn't allow for 64 ounces. They allow for 120 ounces or 32 ounces, but not 64, which is a really uh, just strange twist in the law. And so the brewers, the small brewers in Florida, decided to take on this law. They didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal since most states in the rest of the country allow that size. But the wholesalers, the people who distribute beer, put a lot of money and a lot of, uh, a lot of their weight behind defeating that. The way they defeated it was to attach a uh, rider to the bill that would have made the brewers have to pay them for all of the beer they sold out of their brew pubs, which means that they would have had to sell the beer to the wholesalers. The wholesalers don't do anything, but then they sell it back to them at a marked up price. Maybe. They don't have to, but they could. And so the brewers in Florida decided to just kill the bill rather than have to deal with, with that poison. And so one of the questions that you might ask is, why the wholesalers would try and kill that bill. What, what was their concern? And the wholesalers' main concern is that the brewers, through growler sales and through sales from the brew pub, are trying to go around what we call the three-tiered system. So if you've never heard of that, this is uh, when I talked about how beer was really one of the primary driving forces behind prohibition, what I was really talking about are saloons. The saloons prior to prohibition were many. Uh, in fact, some statistics prior to Prohibition say that in some cities there was one saloon for every 100 to 200 residents. So the nation was really awash in beer for a while there. Uh, but the thing about the saloons was that most of them were owned. They were patronized by a brewery. The brewery, in, in, uh, they would give them money, they would give them food to give to their patrons, and they would pay for tap handles and other things on the condition, on the condition that the uh, saloon would only sell their product. And prohibitionists believe that this was the cause, one of the reasons that people were drinking so much. The saloons were incentivized to push as much beer onto their customers as possible. So after prohibition was repealed, one of the solutions that almost every state came up with to deal with this excessive consumption was to separate out the producers of alcohol from the people who sold it. So this three-tiered system is meant to say that a brewer can brew, but they cannot distribute beer. They cannot become a retail operation. There are some exceptions, like I mentioned brew pubs. Some states say there's limited quantities you can brew, and then you can sell it to people with food, but you can't then bottle the beer and sell it on the market. Uh, now, so the wholesalers, because they were this middle tier, they had a lot of power after Prohibition, because the let's say you're a restaurant or you're a, you're a store and you want to get alcohol to sell to your customers, you have to go through that wholesaler. And if you're a brewer or a vintner or a distiller and you want to get your product to market, you have to go through that wholesaler. So they became one of the most powerful lobbies in this country, and they put their weight behind, ev behind every effort to liberalize the alcohol laws. This is one of the reasons that we still have a lot of outdated laws, for example, in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, the wholesaler, the distributor, is actually the state. 
all of the wine, all of the liquor that you can buy, whether you're at a restaurant or you're at a store, is purchased by the state. If you want a wine, let's say, made in California that the state has chosen not to purchase, tough luck. This guy here, a lawyer who should have known better, uh, he was a wine connoisseur. I guess he still is a wine <coughs> connoisseur. And he didn't like this law, and he did what a lot of Pennsylvanians do, is they hop the border over to Delaware or another state, and they go and buy the wine that they want, and then they bring it home. He happened to have a, an extraordinary large collection worth about $200,000, and he was also maybe selling some of it to his friends. And the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board caught wind of this and seized his product. As far as I know, uh, the plan is to just throw it down the drain, which is kind of a shame. But so there have been some successes, not to be a total Debbie Downer about the alcohol laws that are still around. Uh, there have been a lot of um, movements to really liberalize the laws. One great success that happened in 2013 was Washington State. Washington State, like Pennsylvania, was the distributor of alcohol. The only way you could buy liquor or wine was to go to a state store. And Costco, in particular, was very interested in getting into the state and selling alcohol. So they put a lot of money behind the initiative to privatize alcohol sales, and they were successful. But it was one of the hardest fought and one of the most expensive initiatives, I think, in Washington state's history. You can look on the left. Those are the people who supported it. Those are most of the people who supported it. On the right, that's not even everybody who opposed it. And if you can, I don't know if you can see, a lot of those are unions, um, the liquor store workers, teachers, nurses. That campaign really symbolizes, or it, it's a really good example of how the efforts uh, of prohibitionists in the 1920s and earlier are still around today. That campaign focused a lot on public health, public safety, uh, and I will show you a commercial now that sort of sums that up. Alcohol kills more kids than any other drug. That's why we urge you to vote no on Initiative 1183. Last year, I spoke out against the expansion of liquor stores. This year's measure is still too dangerous. 1183 allows four times as many stores to sell liquor. Including many marts and gas stations that sell alcohol to one out of four miners. And problem drinking could increase as much as 48%. That's still too risky for our kids. Join us. Vote no on Initiative 1183. Right, so they're using the classic, you know, think of the children and the health effects without a whole lot of facts to support them. But still, the uh, people who wanted privatization, they won. Uh, and so far, so good. Um, it's not bedlam. Kids aren't drinking and falling over in the street. But like I said, they're using, and as Wally mentioned, they're using the same tactics as the women's Christian temperance unions or the prohibitionists before prohibition. You can see this is there. Uh, they really featured a lot of times, you know, a woman and a child crying, uh, their house being repossessed while their husband is away in the bar in the saloon getting drunk. Uh, here's another one. Where, you know, don't blame the guys, blame the saloons, pass prohibition. And that is what's going on today. And Walter mentioned this too, and I want to talk about it, is that one of the worst or most egregious remnant of prohibition is that people who are neo-temperance, people who want to restrict access to alcohol, have become more sophisticated. Uh, and a little bit, they, they operate now with more finesse. They don't just say, well, we want to ban it for your own good, or we think this is a moral wrong. They try and really use science. This is actually from the CDC. They say, this is how much excessive drinking costs. This is how much binge drinking costs America. So even though it's an individual decision, it's affecting all of us, so we should do something about it. By the way, they define binge drinking as four drinks for a woman in an event, uh, in a, one sitting, and five for men. I don't know about you, but the that's alcohol all. marketing. Sorry. I hope. Wow. Well, let's talk about that making a difference thing. A lot of researchers really like to stick to the science. 
but practitioners aren't afraid to get in there and mix it up. And you certainly have done that. And actually, you've done a tremendous job as an advocate for alcohol policies that would protect public health. And perhaps you can tell me a little bit about your role in a major triumph here in Maryland recently in changing alcohol policy and the alcohol tax. Sure. Just to be very blunt about it, I am an advocate. I am an interested scientist. I actually am fairly skeptical of pure objectivity in science, and certainly in my own field. What I understand is that the science is easily politicized, and in particular, it's politicized by the research questions that people ask. And my research questions have always been driven by what the policy opportunities are in the moment, or what policy opportunities I can promote by doing research that will support people being able to make change. And what you're referring to is a good example. So I didn't get to introduce that, but that was Professor David Jernigan from the Bloomberg School of Health at uh, Johns Hopkins, which is uh, unfortunately my alma mater. He, he's a professor, he's a, a doctor, he's fairly well respected. Uh, he gets a lot of money from Bloomberg, from the CDC, NIH, to do alcohol research. And as you heard him say, he's not an objective researcher. He has, he has very specific uh, public health goals and regulatory goals, and he's been mildly successful at implementing some of those. Uh, as he mentioned there on that audio, the taxes, because people like him, people who are of the neo-prohibitionist bent, they believe that the more expensive alcohol is, the less likely people are to drink it. So his plan is to raise taxes to make it harder for people to buy alcohol. And in my home state, or the state I live in, Maryland, uh, we don't have Sunday sales. You can't get alcohol in grocery stores, uh, except for a very small number of them that have been grandfathered in. It's very difficult to get alcohol in Maryland, and he wants to keep it that way. And the government, with American taxpayer money, uh, is paying him to make that case. He speaks. Um, to the Maryland legislature all the time about these policies. One of the other policies he was able to pass last year was a ban on Everclear, or a ban on 190-proof liquor. Uh, the, uh, the justification for that ban was to protect college kids from rape, which, if that strikes you as a little bit strange, the theory is that that high-proof alcohol is contributing to extreme drinking on campus, jungle juice, and that there is, that is leading to rape on campus. He was successful at making that case, uh, and I'm sure he's going to have other initiatives that he's going to try and put on the ballot in coming years. So I, I would reiterate what Walter said uh, and what Stacia said, that what we need to do is to be aware that, that prohibition, prohibitionism looks a little bit different now, but it hasn't gone away. People still want to restrict our access to certain goods and services for our own good, and we have to be constantly vigilant to make sure that we don't end up with, with greater prohibition than we already have now. Great, thank you.